Hello, Joe. How are you, sir? You good? Nearly perfect, Mark. How are you? You look even better. You look <laughs> even better. Uh, yeah. Um, I re- yeah. Thank you. You're the first uh, interview, first guest, whatever you want to say. I don't really know what this is yet, but uh, thank you for being a part of it. And uh, yeah. I think as the recovery movement modernizes, the use of new technology will be part of that. And I think podcasting is a natural. It's just designed for what we're doing. Facts, so good for facts. you guys. Oh, um, no, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Or anything at all, if you'd like? Uh, well, uh, I can tell you about my life in recovery. I can tell you how uh, I came to be a person in recovery. Where do you want me to start? Any where you feel comfortable, man, if that's okay with you. Um, sure. Like uh, the way I see it, like you just said, podcasts are important. Like the way the Zoom is after happening, it's important. Like uh, it's, it's at a touch of a button now. And I heard someone saying to me before that if I can't get it in like five taps, it's useless to me. I want to talk about the other thing now. I want to talk about another thing now. Yeah, so, that's right. It's got to be. Yeah, yeah. But by it, all means, take your time. Yeah, so I really think uh, that um, in recovery, everything changes, except people have a resistance to change. So we see. Uh, like a society like AA, having most of the people in the middle not having one opinion one way or the other, and and then people who have strong opinions about preserving the integrity of the message and keeping things the same, and others about widening the gateway and uh, not falling prey to dogma and always trying to change things up. And um, all of us have these tendencies. It's not like there's one type of person who is rigid and one type of person who is spontaneous. Uh, All of us flutter back and forth. We may lean one way more than the other, but I'll give you an example. Our uh, free thinkers meeting in Toronto, Canada meets in the University of Toronto in a classroom. So we're not the only people that occupy that classroom. So Sometimes the classroom is set up in different ways to accommodate different classes just for what they want to do. They might put four desks together and make a circle of chairs around them and have several of these kind of like a a banquet hall. And others will just line chairs up with a table in front of them all facing the front. And some will make a a boardroom table in the middle with tables all around. So it could be any way. But our free thinkers meeting uh, started out with a a square of tables and chairs all around them. So we're all facing each other. And often we'll arrive at the meeting and there's only minutes to spare because the other class has just left. But before we start, someone has to rearrange the chairs in the right way like it matters how yeah. we sit in the room uh, that is going to have an impact on what quality of meeting or whether this can be, you know, our beyond belief meeting or not. So all of us have these tendencies. You can mess with a, a meeting just by changing uh, 
a ritual, a, a reading and, and seeing who says, hey, wait, we, we can't do that now. We have to read this first. And I think it's good for groups maybe to think about trying new things. If you've always read uh, one book as part of your reading, try introducing another book just for a month to see how people like it. If you have a closing ritual, change it to another ritual just to see if people like it or maybe someone will introduce a new idea. And um, We all have to do things to just sort of keep us not uh, sort of stuck in our ways. I think that's a normal human tendency. Yeah, it's funny you say that because um, the, the person didn't show up once that was like secretary or host or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then I, I was like, right, someone has to do it, so I'll do it. And I just, I, but it seems that I left too many books on the table. And it's like, is there a fucking book sale going on or something? Is all I heard about one person. So, yeah. But uh, do you know the way you said you did the four tables that way? Is that like a homage or something? Or why, why, why that? Like, why? Why does it have to be that way in your eyes? Or why did it do it that way? Why? Yeah, it's, uh, and, and, and people are like that. They, people think that uh, AA is very regional. And uh, a lot of the meetings in Toronto have a similar format. And if you drive to Montreal or to Buffalo, New York, or to Detroit, or anywhere in between, the meetings will have a, a slightly different culture. But the people who have only been to those meetings will go to one of these other meetings and go, that's no way to run a meeting because they're uncomfortable with the change. We, we easily forget how uncomfortable we were in, when we were new at that meeting. You know, when people say, you know, hi, my name's Joe and I'm an alcoholic and everyone goes, hi, Joe. I thought, oh my God, doesn't that embarrass you all? Like, that's just so nursery school. What are you doing, right? Like, uh, exactly, uh, you're yeah. adults here, behave like it. Like, it just seemed, it made me uncomfortable. And uh, there were a lot of things about AA rituals that made me comfortable. And now I'm tone deaf to them. I'm impervious to them. Uh, you know, people say the word, uh, alcoholic is a stigmatized word it's a totally neutral word to me it doesn't make me uh, precious or special uh, but it doesn't make me less than anybody else it's just like being left-handed it's not a there's no stigma to being left-handed and i don't think there's a stigma to being an alcoholic now that's my own view uh, other people who don't want people in their world to know they're in recovery or that they've suffered from addiction. They're, they have a right to that. They, they, they deserve to know when they come to AA that that uh, privacy will be respected. Uh, but, you know, it, the idea that using the word alcoholic or alcoholism is dated or stigmatized it's really just a talking point and, and it's an opinion. It's not a fact, but the liberalization of language uh, seems to uh, always want to change things where I have uh, alcohol use disorder, but that's not very catchy <laughs> no. as uh, 
Uh, we have uh, someone in our group uh, who says his name and he says, and I'm a drunk that don't drink. And, you know, it's, you know, there's nothing. He's not, uh, you know, putting himself down by calling himself a drunk. And um, he's not saying he's uh, uh, hopelessly out of control by saying he don't drink. He just, he's really just trying, it's his own little uh, way of saying things. And I, I think uh, we get too uh, caught up in everyone having to talk the same language and it should apply to everybody. I think that's a, you know, the more individual we can leave it, the better. This isn't what you wanted to talk about at all, was it? No, no, it's cool. It's funny you say that because I have a friend who is like, what makes them so fucking special? Why don't they just say alcoholic? You know what I mean, that's that. Why don't they say it that way? But then there's yeah. other people that, um, uh, like I am a recovered member or I'm in recovery, like you were saying. It's uh, it's interesting to me. And then uh, I've got a friend who just likes to say addict or it's like, but he knows it upsets some people in AA. So yeah, there's a, there's a person, he just says that, and I'll do it especially if I know that person's going to be in the room, just so I can see them going, oh, what are you doing in my room? But uh, no, it's uh, it's interesting that you say that. Um, uh, the way I, I don't know, I, like does, does words offend you? Like in a sense, or is it just like, uh, would, would you prefer if everyone just flat out said alcoholic or would, do you know what I mean? Do you, do you mind that some people say that? Yeah, like, I think it it's perfectly. I think it's perfectly okay for someone to mm -hmm. say that word offends me, or I'm uncomfortable with that word because, and then accommodating them. That's one thing, but I think people get offended on behalf of other people. Yes, and other people yeah. haven't asked them to advocate for them. They've just taken this on that we can't talk that way because it's sexist or we can't talk that way because it's uh condescending or it's uh, stigmatizing so it's funny you say that like sexist or whatever or race whatever the term might be uh, mm -hmm. because it's like oh that person is old they get the excuse no no fuck that shit they're on zoom they're using a computer they, they, they manage to get to the online meeting they can fucking yeah. learn that that's inappropriate that's that's not on that's uh yeah you know what I mean? Yeah, they can still say, right. you know what I mean? Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Oh, that black dude, you know, maybe that's the way to say it. Maybe African American. How the fuck is he African American and he's in Canada or something? You know what I mean? It's, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, some words like uh, annoy me in a sense, but it's why, why can't you learn? Your name is Joe. I don't call you Joe. You know what I mean? Joseph. I don't call you Joey. You know what I mean? That's yeah. what you go by. You know, so I had a friend from Spain. Her name was Laura instead of Laura. Yeah. And just, Every time she was introduced, it uh, it'd be like, and it's Laura. Thank you for fucking that up again. But uh, next time, maybe you'll know. And you know, no. Uh, but then again, it, it's what bothers you, like you just said, or do I feel I need to get upset by certain things? I, I was literally talking to Jimmy there the other day, and I said to him, "Thank fuck, Zoom didn't happen when Trump became president four years ago. Imagine this. I, I would have been turned off it straight away. You know." Yeah, in the sense where it's just it's too much bashing. It's not enough uh, program, not enough like wanting to help. It's just sometimes you're upset because you you think you need to be upset. I think, and that that might offend a few people. Episode one, everyone. Uh, no, but like, I think it's why like, if something really does upset you and truly, but then sometimes I listen to people and I think that they they're only getting upset because Joe said oh, you need to be upset about this or Mark needs to be upset about you know. No, don't you know. 
don't 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 tell me or just because I'm Irish, uh, I'm into like hurling or something, or I'm into do this thing. You're, you're you're Canadian. I know you like hockey, but you obviously know a few people that don't like it as well. You know exactly right. Yeah, most of Canada doesn't watch hockey, although it's the national sport, right? You know yeah. because most people are into something else. But if you go to the arena and there's seventeen thousand other people there all cheering it's easy mm. to get the idea that everyone's into this yeah. language is uh as a method of communication it's a flawed instrument but it's all we have right you know we you know we we try to communicate with words and there there's still no way for me to convey an idea to you and for you to hear it the way i intended it because you know of how you and I are uh, different, uh, you know, the way we are raised culturally, the just our our preferences and our personality will just. I'll hear you and I will listen to the same speaker. I'll hear something funny. You'll hear something sad, right? It, it just it yes. goes that way. Why is that then? What do you think? Um... So humor, we can only laugh at something once and then with sadness, like it'll make us sad the whole time, if you get me. So how come it didn't I take think us it's right just, back to... You know, it's, it's a reflection of who we are, the audience, or where we're at at the time, more than what is actually being said, what we're absorbing. Um, for instance, if uh, uh, someone says something derogatory to you or me, is that a reflection of you or me, or is that a reflection of who they are? You know, why are they so preoccupied with how I eat my dinner or how I run my meeting or, um, you know, how I, the, the words I use, right? You know, that's uh, mind your own business might be, a, uh, I guess we say live and let live. That's a, a little gentler. <laughs> Go over and slap it. Put it in the right hand, you lefty. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. No. Um, you know, and then people get, um, you know, like a righteous indignation is a, is a drug all onto its own. It, it gives you a little dopamine buzz because you feel superior to somebody else or you feel hard done by. And, and that's a powerful feeling. And, and uh, sometimes we uh, take a trip without leaving the farm, without uh, relapsing on drugs. We find ways to enhance our serotonin levels. I, I, I know these words and vocabulary, but don't confuse me for a neuroscientist who knows what they actually mean. Uh, I don't, but I, I do know that the brain uh, is uh, an organ and it's affected by chemicals. Uh, but when our brain is affected by chemicals, it changes how we feel and how we think, uh, as opposed to when my legs are affected by chemicals, I either get, you know, stronger or flabbier, depending uh, what the result is. So, uh, yeah, people are inclined to uh, uh, limit their thinking. And, and when I say that, I'm inclined to limit my thinking. I hear a lot of people, I'll give you an example. A lot of people say, uh, oh, AA needs to change the big book because it's outdated 
and it doesn't appeal to today's newcomer. It's too religious or it's too sexist or it's too American centric. It's heteronormative, you know, whatever the uh, issue is. And then uh, someone else goes, no, no, this is, this is the, the best thing since sliced bread. No one's written a better book about addiction since then. Why would we change for the sake of change? So really, so the people who like it, fine. But the people who don't like it, why not just use something else? Why not read Living Sober or uh, The AA Grapevine or read another book written by another alcoholic who doesn't have a conference approved book? Why, why just insist that all of AA accommodate your need uh, by changing a book that you disagree with? there's plenty to choose from and democracy means everybody gets their say but not everybody gets their way so what we have to do is just sort of personalize our meetings and our own AA program to what works for us but I think too much effort is spent pointing the finger at the general service office and saying you must this you need to this if only they would that when we can start employing these things in our home group tomorrow. We don't need anybody's permission. If we want to read something else or stop reading something or change from a, a speaker meeting to a discussion meeting, that's all the group's choice. And we seem to think there's some higher authority and there, there isn't. The, the pressure we're imagining that is put upon us in terms of how we run our meetings is just, you know, um, a misunderstanding or a wrong interpretation of how AA runs. The group has the is um, what's the term um, has uh, autonomy. It's a certain type of right. It's uh, to be autonomous. No, uh, it's autonomous. Yes, but um, oh, there's a there's a legal term for it which just means that there, there's the um, inalienable. A group has an inalienable right. And what that means is that right wasn't granted to them by AA. You and I can start a meeting. We can call this an AA meeting. And we don't need to file papers and get approval. It's a meeting because we said it's a meeting. Uh, so it's a it it's inalienable in that it has the right to set its own track or change its rules as it goes along, and there's no uh, regulatory body that's that can disapprove of something, uh, disenfranchise an AA group or an AA member. We're a member if we say we are. We're a group if we say we are. Not everybody realizes that. Not everybody agrees that should be the case, but that is in fact how AA is structured if we follow our customs. And I separate customs from traditions because traditions are specific things that are laid out based on AA's experience. They're not rules. They're just, hey, we've had problems with this in the past. This is our uh, policy, uh, but uh, we have a tradition that allows you to throw out all the traditions if you want, and that's group autonomy. So, you know, a lot of these 
uh, rules of AA are not rules at all. They're customs because the meetings we've gone to all follow that same custom. We think that's how AA is. And it's uh, the limits are just what our imagination is. Yes. Uh, how does something go from uh, not being approved literature to being like, have you seen in your time something that was bad mouthed to know is acceptable? Because you mentioned living sober and people forget that that's like approved as well. Exactly right. It's, it's not as popular as the big book or the 12 and 12 or the daily reflections book. Way more relatable though. Yeah, it, it is for me uh, because it was, it's more current. It was written in the seventies instead of the thirties. So it uses he or she, and it uses uh, it, it. It's written in a world that already has television and telecommunication. Right? I mean, we people forget the big book was written. There was no TV. There was barely radio. Right? You know, like it was. It was a, a another age ago for sure, where um, living sober. Not only was it written more recently. And not only does it employ more of AA's global experience, if you call the big book uh, the um, sort of collective wisdom of the first hundred members, that isn't exactly true. But if you want to characterize it that way, uh, for sake of argument, I would accept this is our best practices, what we learned through trial and error. Here's what we did. Step one, step two, dot, dot, dot. And, um, and then everyone else gets to tell their own story in their own way. Most people spend all their time on the front of the big book and not the human stories, which I think is the real currency of AA, is our storytelling, our community. So, uh, so if the big book is the collective wisdom of AA when it was four years old with 100 members, living sober is the collective wisdom of AA when we were 500,000 members with 40 years of experience. So, you know, which would you use, you know, if you were starting all over again, you know, I would use the broader experience, but it only sells uh, 30 to 50,000 copies a year where the big book sells a million copies a year. People love that big book and uh, they all but forget about uh, living sober, which I think is uh, can keep you sober as well as any book can keep you sober. So me and a buddy were talking about it the other day. Roughly how many sales was there with the big book? Uh, the big book uh, has tailed off um, for for years. When, when Bill was alive, it was no bestseller, right? Not yeah, every yeah. group used it. Not every person owned one. And in the 90s, uh, when he was uh, uh, dead and gone, it became uh, more sacred and they started printing a million a year and selling a million a year. It took 34 years to sell 1 million big books and only four more years to sell 2 million big books. And then another four years after that, we're talking now uh, the mid 80s, late or early 90s, we're selling 1 million big books every year and there's only 2 million AA members. So who's buying these big books? Either 
treatment centers are buying them for uh, their clients and sending them off to a meeting with their own big book or, uh, you know, I, I don't know who's buying these books, but there's 40 million of them in, uh, in the world today. And uh, there's only 2 million AA. We don't even need another big book. We can just find one from a secondhand bookstore for the next nice. uh, million people that walk in the doors. Stuff. Um, you want to say, so when you came in first then, roughly how much did the big book cost? Because I've heard members locally to me saying it used to only be five quid, five pound, five euro, whatever. Mm -hmm. And now it's up to 13, 14, 15, depending on what room you actually buy it in, which is kind yeah. of mad. I know some of the stories have changed or whatever, and it's the fourth edition now, but like, do you think it should have been a set price? Uh, no, uh, again, that is, uh, it, it would go against everything AA does. It, for starters, they make it as democratic as possible. It's free. If you want to read the PDF, online on aa.org it's accessible to everybody in the world without spending a, a nickel if you want your own you can buy a paperback you can buy a hardcover and then it's it's roughly the cost for the group of getting it to the library table uh whatever that is uh you know the the truth is the sales of big books aren't exactly at cost from general service they, um, they do make a, a small profit that makes up about 40% of their operating expenses from uh, book sales because they don't just sell them to AA members. They sell them to bookstores. They sell them to treatment centers. And in that way, we're a, a, a publisher as much as we're a fellowship of fellow addicts. So I don't even remember what the price was. I remember when it came out, it was $3.50 American, which in today's money would be the equivalent of about $65. So it was quite expensive, right? It wasn't like a pack of cigarettes or something. It was uh, um, a week's wage for some people. And, um, uh, and then it went down in price because of the uh, bulk printing, of course. But uh, it wasn't a part of the AA I grew up in. The AA I grew up in was uh, speaker meetings, discussion groups. Uh, there were books if you wanted them. Some people who love to read and that's how they learned. They would buy the book and read the book on their own. They didn't sit around a table and read through it not, not that they shouldn't do that that's a perfectly legitimate way to run a meeting but the AA I grew up in was not book-based at all as I've often said it was uh, the oral tradition of uh, sharing AA one member to another or one member to the whole room in the case of a speaker meeting so uh, it became book-based when we all of a sudden had a lot of books around and, um, you know, that's, and that can change. It, it isn't stuck that way. It's, uh, and, and we don't have to collectively do anything. Each group can, uh, as you say, run itself uh, the way it wants to. It doesn't have to ask anybody's permission or do it the way the meeting down the street does. So I think I've heard you saying that you were around maybe 10 years before you even read the thing. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Do you think if if your first I, I meeting had, was 
I was a teenager. I had no attention span. Um, you know, uh, you know, I had enough, I was still in school. I had enough to read there. Right. You know, I wasn't (laughs) interested in reading what I thought was a history book. Right. Like, uh, you know, I said that I I wouldn't have read 164 pages of uh, playboy or pornography. Like I didn't have the attention span to spend that much time doing anything because I had a brain that was trying to heal from being pummeled with drugs and alcohol and um you know just sort of and i had some learning disabilities i mean reading just wasn't my thing it's uh, should be a surprise to anybody that i'm a writer today but that was just stubbornness and a desire to learn but uh if my uh, sobriety had been dependent on reading and absorbing what i read I don't know if I'd be alive today. So uh, that doesn't mean that uh, in 1976, in a meeting in Minneapolis, they didn't all sit around a table and read the big book. I don't know, but not as many people did then as they do now, that's for sure. So yeah, I worked the steps without reading the instructions laid out in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, because my sponsor didn't have a big book and neither did I. They just told me how they did it and uh, you know, asked me if that would work for me. And I said, well, I'm gonna do this. And they said, that should be fine. And we just worked it out from there. Did you still do the same similar method then when you're sponsoring people nearly? I, uh, I asked them what they wanna do. I, I, the first time I ever went through the 12 steps as laid out in the big book was because a sponsee wanted to do it that way. And why did they want to do it that way? Well, they'd been to a big book seminar. They were sort of high on this. This is the way 75 people recover. Okay, let's let's do it that way then. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a pleasant experience for me and it was a useful experience for them. They're still sober today. Uh, but yes. it, it's not a magic formula. It's just one way of doing things. What do you make of like Joe and Terry like tapes and stuff like that doing it that way? And you think it's a uh, bit, yeah? Or? I don't blame them for fundamentalism. I blame their followers. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, Bill Wilson might have uh, written the big book, but he wasn't a traditionalist. He was a pioneer. It's my generation that made the big book sacred, not the founding members' uh, generation. And Joe and Charlie talking about their love for the big book and, and um, you know, they, 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 it wasn't their idea. People asked them to come and do this in our group. And then other people said, record it so we can share it with other groups. And then these other groups said, come to our town. We'll, uh, we won't pay you to do it, but we'll pay your expenses. And so they would spend 40 weekends a year Uh, going somewhere, um, you know, to do their little big book workshop. So uh, I've, I've listened to their tapes. I've gone to workshops that are in the spirit of Joe and Charlie. It wasn't, there was no Joe and there was no Charlie, but there were two big book loving AA members. And, you know, they shared their experience, some opinions, some of which I agreed with and disagreed with. Uh, their interpretation 
you know, it, it was fine, but you know, it, I'm not about repetitive strain, right? You know, just doing the same thing over and over again. AA isn't a program, it's a fellowship. If it was the program, the program would be described in our 12 traditions, but the 12 traditions don't even mention steps or working a program, just how to run a meeting. See, what I like about you is um, every time I hear you is different, you know, in the sense where you mix it up. But some people, like I learned in the early days or whatever, oh, that's hilarious. I'd say to someone, it's like, he says that every fucking week. And then, like, next week I'd hear the same thing. People know, like, to pause for laughter, which I find on Zoom. It's like, wait, where are you stopping? You know, you, there's, <laughs> there's, there's no one here laughing. Maybe at home they're laughing at you. But I don't know. Um, would you be able to talk about being delisted for a little while? Oh, okay. uh, sure. And... Um... AA history, people think it's something that happened in the Which 30s you weren't the first the meeting, I've heard you saying. But AA history is always happening. And traditions are always being um, misunderstood and uh, weaponized against other people. This is going on today somewhere. Uh, it went on for us when we were new. And... Uh, Anything novel in uh, our greater Toronto area seems to uh, rub the old timers the wrong way. You know, what do you mean you're having a dance? That's not AA. Or what do you mean you're uh, uh, having a meeting just for uh, gays and lesbians? Uh, what do you mean you're having a young people's meeting? What makes you so precious, right? Uh, you think you're not welcome at our meeting? Just come, sit down, shut up, and watch your language. <laughs> you Welcoming know, so, always. You know, so, uh, so the, the, there is a tendency in some communities, and ours was one of them, to, you know, people who, maybe this has to do with uh, being, uh, coming to believe in a power greater than yourself is restoring you to sanity you're predisposed to believe in authority, not my will, God's will. Now, I, I don't believe any of that, but people who do, I'm sure they think in terms of a hierarchy. You know, God's will is better than human will. General services mm -hmm. ideas are better than the home group's ideas. Inner group will govern the groups just to make sure things don't get out of order. But that's just not how AA is designed. Uh, so uh, what happened was um, some unintended consequences came from this. For anyone who doesn't know the story, um, the first uh, agnostic atheist group started in 2009 in Toronto Intergroup. Um, within three months, it was now meeting twice a week. Uh, within six months, there was now a brand new group called We Agnostics. So Beyond Belief met twice a week and We Agnostics started. And um, some of the people, um, you know, started talking about, well, how do they, you know, um, what about the God thing? And, and if they asked, we would say, oh, yeah, that's, that's easy. Uh, you know, one group would say, well, we just rewrote the steps without God can you do that? You can't do that. 
uh, well, uh, we decided to do that and that's what we're doing. The other group, well, we don't read the steps, right? You know, you, you, you know, they had AA before they had steps. You don't need steps to have an AA. Yes, you do. That's the AA program. The purpose of a group is to practice the 12 steps and to have a spiritual awakening. Well, that's the purpose of your group, friend, but that's not, you know, necessarily uh, the way we see things. So um, the tyranny of the, uh, uh, Bill Wilson uh, warns against something called the tyranny of the majority. And that's when the majority in AA are either angry, uninformed, or hasty. Uh, in other words, they're emotional about something. They're making an emotional decision and they're going to impose their will on the minority. And uh, you, can, you can have tyranny of the minority. You, you know, the, the same people who say, you have to change that big book, even though 95% of AA loves it, you have to change the words in it. That's, that's a tyranny of the minority, right? Most people like it just the way it is. So, um, so, so that happened and it happens and it will happen again. And it happened in Toronto and they, they voted. Um, we thought we would go there. We would explain how the AA traditions work, how we interpret them, how uh, we've been granted the autonomy to do things in our own way. And they'd say, we don't like it. And we'd say, it's not a popularity contest. And they say, who said you could do that? We said, we didn't ask permission. If we want, <laughs> uh, if we want the uh, opinion of intergroup, we'll give it to them. We'll send our intergroup rep and give you our opinion. And, uh, and then we would all vote and they would, you know, uh, everyone would have their say and it'd just be the next day we'd be back doing our own thing in our own meetings. But they actually uh, voted by a slim majority to uh, extricate the, uh, the atheist agnostic groups. Now, that didn't mean we didn't run our meeting the next Thursday. We did. Uh, by then, we had uh, an internet. So, you know, we, we put up a website, Agnostic Atheist AA Groups. We started a blog. Uh, we started to get some attention from around the world. Um, the Toronto Star, the most read newspaper in Canada, uh, picked mm -hmm. up the story of um, uh, the... AA with its primary purpose to help alcoholics get sober, kicking out a group because they didn't believe in God. They, they, they saw that as salacious and they put it on the front page of their, uh, their newspaper and it became international news. And uh, so now Toronto Intergroup was under the microscope and eventually general service got involved and um, uh, it even uh, things take a long time in AA. They say that even a knee-jerk reaction takes three years to approve. Uh, you know, uh, people <laughs> people get frustrated with how slow things go in AA. But but four years later, the groups are uh, re-enlisted, and two more years after that. There isn't a single intergroup rep who even remembers a time that the agnostic atheist groups were delisted. So uh, people were hurt by it. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, 
people on both sides left AA in frustration with the, uh, you know, pettiness and the, um, you know, mean spiritedness of uh, mm. both sides barking at each other and said, I don't want to be part of this uh, circus. And they, they left. Not all of them got very sick and died, but uh, that was probably a fallout too. Some people probably lost their sobriety over it. Uh, but what, uh, what else happened is other members of Toronto had never even conceived the idea of an agnostic atheist meeting. And because they got this news from intergroup, they go, atheist agnostic meeting? Well, I, I don't actually believe in a prayer answering sobriety granting God. Uh, and they would convert their group to atheist agnostic by just taking the prayer out and and reassessing their readings and rituals, or they would start a new group with some other friends. So by the time the two groups that got delisted were put back in the Toronto directory, there were 30 or 40 meetings all across Canada uh, that were secular for atheists and agnostics. And the question you have to ask yourself is, yeah, it was wrong that they delisted those two meetings, but if they hadn't, if they had done the right thing and they had uh, agreed, okay, we don't like it, but you're autonomous and you can do what you wish. The question has to be asked, well, in 2021, would there now still be just those two groups in Canada? Or uh, would there be 400 meetings or would there be 40 mm -hmm. meetings? Like what effect... Uh, did what unintended consequences came from them trying to sort of, you know, uh, bend the AA traditions and impose rules upon groups? It, it probably helped us. It's kind of like uh, the Rolling Stones attitude about publicity. There's no such thing as bad press. All press is good press when you're the bad boys of rock and roll. Hmm. So if you're counterculture, if you're um, anti-establishment, uh, you know, being oppressed uh, by uh, the establishment, you know, that's only going to favor other people who uh, cheer for the underdog. So, so here we are. Um, worldwide, we have maybe, it's hard to tell exactly, but let's say there's a thousand agnostic groups around the world. That's pretty good because of Zoom, that means you and I, 15 hours a day, we can go to a secular AA meeting. Mm 